Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, everyone. It's Annika. Welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. I'll be honest, I feel a little out of my depth with today's topic of speech genes. In chatting to some of my colleagues, it seems many of us do. How much should we know about the genetics of childhood speech disorders? And would knowing more change our clinical practice in any way? To help us all get a little bit more confident in our understanding of this complex topic, I am just super excited to be chatting to Professor Angela Morgan today. Angela is a speech pathologist with over 20 years of clinical research experience in Australia and the UK. She leads the National Health and Medical Research Council Centre for Excellence in Speech and Language and is the lead of the Speech and Language Group at Murdoch Children's Research Institute. She is also a Professor of Speech Pathology at the University of Melbourne. That is a very impressive resume, Ange. Welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks, Annika. And yes, no one's out of their depth. We're all learning so much. But thank you. That's a really lovely and kind introduction. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I know you are such a busy, busy person and I am really fascinated in the work that you do. And I'm wondering if a nice place to start might be to ask you if you could tell us all about the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and what your role there involves. Yeah, thank you. Yes, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute is actually Australia's largest child research institute. But even more than that, it's actually ranks in the top three of child research institutes globally for the quality of the scientific work uh, that's done wow. here. So that's really fantastic to have an mm. Australian-led mm. child research institute. Uh, the institute was founded, I think, in 1986 by Professor David Danks, who is really a leading um, expert in genetics and with the very generous donation from Dame Elizabeth Murdoch. So we are affiliated with the Murdoch family, although it was really Dame Elizabeth who sadly passed Mm -hmm. away a few years Mm -hmm. ago now. It was her amazing philanthropy that helped to develop the Institute. Mm -hmm. And from there, we really also um, house the Victorian Clinical Genetics Service, which really is Australia's largest clinical uh, genetic service. So it really means that it's a great place to be based if you want to be doing any sort Mm. of research into um, child genetics. Mm. And tell us a little bit about your role. Yeah, so I um, have a few different hats, as you kindly mentioned yeah. before. Yeah, so I still teach at the University of Melbourne and train students, and I also run a clinic, an apraxia clinic here at the Children's Hospital. But my role at Murdoch Children's, I'm really fortunate to have some funding to pay my salary to be a researcher at the moment in training uh, young speech pathologists or older speech pathologists too, speech pathologists with an interest in research, really. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's my great passion is to train others and um, support and mentor others to carry the flag for academic speech pathology uh, because we have so few opportunities really in our field um, to uh, really drive the evidence base I suppose it's really challenging for us to obtain funding and uh, certainly for many years I tried to obtain funding in other areas including acquired brain injury etc but at the moment the genetics does capture the imagination of the funders mm. and is really the explosion of where health has been going so we've been fortunate to yeah have that mm. support to, to sort of grow our team. Right. So tell me a little bit about your team. So it's called the Speech and Language Centre for Excellence. Who is part of the team? 
Yeah, so we have um, around, I think, 12 other chief investigators who are also speech pathologists, such as Professor Sheena Riley or laureate professors of neurology, such as Professor Ingrid Sheffer, paediatricians like uh, David Coman in, in Queensland and Professor David Amor, who's a clinical geneticist here in Melbourne. So a lot of different professions, um, really multidisciplinary group. They're sort of the chief investigators. And then we have lots of associate investigators who are different speech pathologists nationally around the country and also clinical geneticists, genetic counsellors around the country. Uh, and then we have our postdoctoral fellows. So they arrange from backgrounds of psychology to genetic statistics to speech pathology. And then we have a whole layer of um, terrific PhD students. And then also masters of speech pathology students who conduct research studies. So we had 12 um, masters students this year as mm-hmm. well in our team. So yeah, we, we've probably got around 40 team members at the moment, actually. So it is really um, a really large team. It sounds like a very, team. very impressive lineup of very, very skilled people. Yeah, they're really lovely people too. Yes, we really try and have a culture of just picking super lovely down-to-earth people too in our team. So we're really proud of our team culture. Now, I'm just wondering if I can sort of turn you to the history of genetics of speech disorders, if that's okay. What is the history? Like when when did, I know you're saying there's a real explosion of interest in this area at the moment, but what what's, um, you know, how long ago have people started to be interested in this area and when did research start? Yeah, it's a really great question. Actually, the earliest studies were sort of twin studies back as early as I think really the 1920s when people observed that you could see differences um, in the transmission if you like of speech and language disorders where in twins so we've known that for a long time and those of us who work clinically sometimes see inherited type conditions genetic conditions and that's really where the first um, gene associated with speech and language disorder in the absence of intellectual disability was identified in 2001 was in a large family, uh, Mm -hmm. a large British family where there are three generations of that family. Half of the family carried a mutation, which we now call a variant. It's a much Mm -hmm. nicer word, a variant or change in the FOXP2 gene. And so that was Mm -hmm. the really famous gene that everyone learned about in 2001. And it really was from this large family where that gene change had been passed down three generations. But what's happened in the last few years in particular is since the Human Genome Project was conducted, uh, we now have mapped all of the genes of the human body. So looking Mm. for errors or spelling mistakes, if you like, in the genes Mm. is much easier. And so since that project, um, we've now been able to not just study families where genes are passed down, but also look at families where perhaps mum and dad have had no history of speech Mm. and language disorder and only their child has presented with a severe speech problem and when we want to know why Mm. we can do now the whole gene mapping of mum dad and the child and see where there might be spelling errors in the child's DNA or make genetic makeup that wasn't present in mum and dad so that's called de novo so where the child for the first time might have presented with that gene change and it's really been that ability since the human genome project to map all of those genes in the human body really quickly and easily that these changes have um you know or rather the explosion in mm, absolutely it makes that your job and work a little bit easier i easier? could imagine 
imagine. And totally more affordable because right. it, the Human Genome Project, I think it was $100 million US dollars oh, wow. to sequence the first person, so to, to map the genes in the first individual. Uh, and then that price really plummeted over time so that mm. um, we now, it's still expensive, it's still about 900, it? 900 Australian dollars per person okay. to, to get a good quality of mapping of their DNA, mapping of the genes. Um, mm. So with a family of three, that's still about $3,000 or so, which is still expensive. And that doesn't include the analysis. That's just mapping the genes. Mm. And we then have to pay for analysis. So well, it's yeah, still but, quite costly, but not still, as costly. Yes, not as much as $100 million US no. per person. So no, just out of the reach of the average person, just a little bit. Just, <laughs> just a bit. So what, what sort of um, prompts a family to do that from your experience? Mm, yeah, it's a really nice question. In our experience, often, um, you know, mothers seem to, and dads too, uh, have a sense that there is something different about their child around the challenge with speech and language acquisition. So often, particularly families who might have other children or um parents who have backgrounds in teaching or other educational areas where they see how relatively easily other children acquire speech and language and they think I am putting in all of this effort and we just cannot understand why our child isn't learning to speak easily. The families go and have multiple GP appointments, paediatrician appointments, they're sent off to neurologists, some of those do brain scans, they show nothing, they're sent for metabolic tests, is it a metabolic? metabolic condition, lots of blood tests, lots of hearing tests, it must be a hearing issue. Um, and so families just end up getting quite frustrated and think, is there something genetic? That's sort of one of the, the core pathways. Is there a reason um, for this that hasn't been identified in other traditional routes? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So as speech pathologists, as paediatric speech mm -hmm. pathologists, mm -hmm. many of us have worked with kids with fairly significant speech sound disorders. Mm -hmm. Not all those families want that why question. So is it is it a conversation that we should be raising with families about whether they do want to explore the why? Yeah, I think it's a really nice question. I think um, for in our experience, of course, we really uh, largely see the families of children who have very severe speech conditions like childhood apraxia of speech. And really, I would say it's really only children with a severe childhood or practice mm -hmm. speech presentation that um, I've had experience of those parents really asking why. Okay, yeah. Um, and so I think within that realm, if families are coming to you and, and would like to know more, that's one thing, isn't it? But you raise a good question, should we be asking families? So we do have a second opinion clinic at the Royal Children's Hospital and some of our families at that clinic come and they really just want to hear, have I got a diagnosis of apraxia or not? Uh, they might have been working with people who didn't feel entirely comfortable or people who are just fantastic and would like a second opinion, you know, mm. clinicians who just think, oh, I am not sure, but I'm pretty sure it's apraxia. Um, and in those cases, sometimes families haven't thought about the why very much. They mm. just want that diagnosis. You're absolutely mm. right. And through meeting my colleague, David Amor, who's a paediatrician, who also sees those families, um, occasionally he will raise with them, uh, you know, have you wondered why or would you like to know why? Because we actually are noticing that one in three children, which is a lot, one in three mm, children wow. have a genetic diagnosis, a single gene 
change that answers their apraxia. So, um, you know, that is a conversation that David has with the families more often than myself. Um, but it's certainly something that I inform parents about because I feel okay. that as a researcher working in apraxia, it's important to share with families the latest information. So I share papers with them and often it might just be that education and sharing a paper and I, I won't necessarily push or have that conversation that it's something we can offer. But by giving mm-hmm. them that um, information, education, that's powerful for those families and, mm-hmm. and most families actually come back and say, is that something that you might be able to help arrange? for us Mm. through the clinic yeah Mm. how interesting just really really fascinating so I'm wondering with my speech pathology intervention lens on if a child does have a genetic diagnosis confirmed Mm. does that change anything I would do with that child would it change my intervention plan is there anything I would change based on that um, yeah. diagnosis. Yes, it's a nice question. And we really um, do notice that there are changes. And the changes that really happen are those that really just optimise what we're doing and make what we're doing much more efficient. So particularly for children with apraxia, we often have that watch and wait approach. Is it really mm-hmm. apraxia? We'll go and mm-hmm. see lots of people. No one wants to necessarily give that label. And so we try lots of different therapies, which we know isn't fantastic because we should sort of pick an approach and really deliver that approach in the way it's intended to be delivered rather than picking and choosing and hoping for the best. So if we understand that the genetic conditions, one in which you know that there will be a motor speech profile or presentation, it gives the clinician more confidence to look for and assess what we think might be happening. And if it does appear to be in line with what we read about in the literature, then to go for it. And the Mm. other features are things such as if we know children have visual impairments for those conditions, we can be much quicker on to getting, uh, you know, encouraging the family, maybe we want to get vision seen to, or do we need to use alternative approaches because vision might be so impaired, or if we know there are great motor limitations and maybe we're not going to push um, sort of sign um, as an early indicator because sign might be very difficult too if you've got upper limb really fine motor challenges. So you can really optimise and enhance your therapeutic approaches by having Mm. that knowledge. um, Mm. And, And confidence by the sounds of it, like much more confidence in the approach that you're going to take. I think so, Annika. I think that's a real benefit. The tricky thing, of course, is that there are still only probably a handful of genes which have then been studied where people have said that, right, we'll take 50 kids with this genetic condition and really look deeply at speech and language. And there will always be a bit of variation, like in all of our children, but it does sort of hone your skills to seeing, okay, well, actually 60% of children in this cohort had this condition. So maybe if I really look to check for those issues, then Mm -hmm. we can rule them out either way. But I also know other children had more of a phonological profile, so I won't be surprised if I see that and I'll feel confident to go ahead with that approach. So you're absolutely right. I think it's really reassuring and gives us confidence. What's also happening though is there are a number of conditions where a child will receive a very rare diagnosis and unfortunately there hasn't been a study of the speech and language abilities. So I think you're right. In those instances, we're still in the dark Mm -hmm. and in those instances, there's just so many you know, I think I, I think le- re- recently I learned something like 
you know, at least 50 new genetic conditions a week. Oh, wow. Um, Something really, really huge like that. It's really hard for paediatricians to keep on top of. Um, Mm. And absolutely, there'll be children in those rare conditions uh, who just, we don't understand the speech and language implications of them. So we need lots Mm. more researchers working in this area. Uh, And so really, there are still a whole plethora of, of children who have these rare genetic conditions where you're right knowing that diagnosis doesn't really help us with our therapy plans mm-hmm. um, because um, we just don't know the speech mm-hmm. implications so it's a tricky time in that way yeah 50 new conditions a I'm week sure is mind-boggling actually yes I'm sure Professor Melissa Wake I'm sure was telling me this recently I don't think I've made that up but it was an astounding number and yeah. it mightn't have only been genetic conditions but other medical conditions as well with wow. new discoveries but the majority of those tend to be genetic mm. so yes pediatricians as well as, as our profession are really struggling to keep mm. up with um with all of the evidence around I these can see why you're so busy yes, <laughs> there's well, so much research to be done <laughs> Isn't oh, <laughs> everyone's just so busy. I don't know. Yeah, technology. I blame technology. <laughs> so I know on your website there is quite a number of these genetic conditions that have already been researched that are listed. I'm wondering if you could um, tell us about some of them, mm. if that's okay. I know there's quite a few, but maybe if you could pick a few out and sort of explore that with us. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, I would say there are easily over 100 conditions that would really have speech and language as a core feature. Yeah. Uh, There are two sort of main types of conditions and I think that's where, you know, it was really new to me to learn about these division of conditions. So some conditions are at a chromosome level. So Mm -hmm. on our DNA, we have chromosomes, uh, which we know about, and those chromosomes carry all of the different genes. And so at a chromosomal level, some children have deletions or duplications. So we see lots of reports where this child has a 16p11.2 deletion, which actually means that on chromosome 16, on the P arm, so you've got a P arm or a Q arm of the chromosome, at that P address at position 11, Point two, there is a deletion or a removal of some of the chromosome. And in that particular condition, just to use that one as an example, because there are a lot of individuals with 16P11.2 deletion and many of them have apraxia or significant mm-hmm. speech and language problems, 25 different genes have actually been deleted or removed or altered. So in those deletion and duplication syndromes, so duplication would be the same sort of condition, but where there are 25 additional yeah. so duplicated genes and and more doesn't mean better, unfortunately. More also means this is an anomaly and something yes. different to usual yeah. makeup. But in those individuals, often because many more genes are often implicated in deletion and duplications, in some of the cases, children are more severe than if you have a single gene condition, like a FOXP2 related condition or other conditions. So that's one thing to keep in mind that, that when you see deletion or duplication, it means that there's a chromosomal. Uh, abnormality and often a number of genes might be implicated Mm. but there are literally hundreds and hundreds of those deletion and duplication syndromes so as I mentioned the 16p11.2 deletion is quite a common one Mm -hmm. it was actually um, for many years known to be the most common cause of autism as well the most common known known cause of autism Um, so children with that condition also have autistic features
features. Um, so that's one of the more common. And then there's, of course, 22Q on 1.2 deletion. Um, or velo, used to be velocardiofacial syndrome, another one that we're more familiar with because we all knew those terms as a, as a graduate speech pathologist. Yeah. And <laughs> more to the chromosome address. Yes, the numbers um, throw the you numbers. a little bit. <laughs> They sort of do, but once you go know that hook of, oh, it's just giving a position on a chromosome. It makes more I think sense. That really helps us. Um, and then there are, yeah, there are so many to mention, I suppose, Annika, but as you say, on our website, we have yeah. a number of those listed. Um, and then there are conditions where you can either have a presentation from a deletion or duplication syndrome or from a single gene change. So that's a bit of a confusing one, but there's a condition um, called Coulin-DeVries syndrome where you can either have a deletion syndrome on chromosome 17 and the Q arm, or you can have a cancel one gene that's varied or has a mutation in it because the cancel one gene is one of the five genes that you see in the 17Q deletion. So, so sometimes there's overlap in the population of children. They've got the same presentation of clinical features, the same speech presentation, but in some children they've got the broader deletion syndrome in others they've got this single gene change in cancel one. And then mm-hmm. there are around 34 other specific single gene conditions. So FOXP2 is the one everyone's sort of Yes, that's probably about. one that I have heard of Definitely. I think so. And I think something exciting and really interesting about FOXP2, when the first papers came out, everyone said, oh, those individuals don't have intellectual disability and they don't have many other comorbid features. But they can, can't they? They can. We just published a paper where there are 28 new families um, that we've studied and and one of our excellent research assistants who's now a doctoral student, Dr Lottie Lottie Morrison. She's not doctor yet, but I always call her Dr Morrison because she's so bright and clever. Um, Mm -hmm. So Lottie Morrison led that paper for us and in in those families absolutely most of the families do not have any um, intellectual impairment or learning difficulties but a handful do yeah. so just by studying another 28 families of course you're always learning more and you're broadening out yes. our understanding of yeah. those conditions yeah. Yeah. and so yeah we're finding that across many of the different conditions we study the CDK13 related disorder is another one where children really present with apraxia in the early years um, and many hard years of speech therapy but the children's speech and language presentation seems to improve and we have many children we know with CDK13 related disorder who attend mainstream high schools who have lovely social skills um, so you know there's there's quite a mix and, and also probably DDX3X is another condition in which children more so have an intellectual disability, but also really have this severe speech and language presentation and often autism. But I'll stop there. You can hear I could talk forever. Yeah, and there's a lot. That's why I just yeah. <laughs> there's so many, isn't there? And I think as an on-the-ground speech pathologist, it's referring to your website and so forth to get more information. If you happen to have a little one that has one of these conditions diagnosed, to really do some research into it and your um website is pretty fantastic at including as much information that you know at the moment um as you say it evolves and grows and changes depending on more and more um people that are identified but it's 
seems very up to date and very thorough what's on there at the moment. So that's where we should go, right? <laughs> Thanks, Annika. Yeah, I think it's one nice resource. And we're also really happy for people to contact us as well, because sometimes there are conditions we're in the midst of studying and we're really happy to share information before it's published, um, if it would help the child or the clinician to help in their, their session planning um, and just understanding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And no question is, you know, we've all had to learn so much. I still learn so much every day in the genetics meetings that we have um so we're we really yeah would like to share that information and we were disappointed of course as everyone has been with COVID um we have another five-year grant um so it's sort of an extension of our center which will start in February so we're really hoping to finally do the workshops and to give us all more confidence around the genetics but also the practical implications of the genetics um as we sort of go forward and the other really lovely work we're doing to go back to your lovely question around families before and why they may seek a diagnosis or not, is we've worked with a clinical genetic um, counselling student, Christy Atkinson, and we've got another student this year, Kwan, who will who have been doing deep interviewing, um, so qualitative um, interviews with families to understand both families who did receive a diagnosis and those who didn't. How did you feel mm. going through that process? Why did you go through that process? What had you expected to find before that process? So that we can better prepare and also mm. better counsel our families around that process and, and just learn for ourselves as a profession exactly as you said before, should we be having those conversations? Is mm. that appropriate? How would families like us to have those conversations? Um, and if so, then how do we train ourselves up um, mm. to be prepared to mm. have the conversations or to refer on to others to have those mm. conversations? That sounds like really fascinating research. Has anything come out of that just yet? Are parents passing on anything or is it still early days on that? Yeah, it's still early days um, because we've only, I think we've got 12 interviews from Christie's study and then Kwan's going to focus more on families who didn't receive a diagnosis um, and how they've felt around that. So I would say hopefully in a year and a bit's time we'll have that information. Mm -hmm. But the other information we have sought recently, which was really fascinating, is still a bit around the clinical utility of a genetic diagnosis. And we worked with health economists who look at both clinical utility or burden for families as well as the cost of course of genomic testing and we surveyed almost a thousand members of the Australian public so these are people who haven't really they're not speech pathologists they're not people who have children with a speech or language condition um, and asked their views around genetic testing and did something called a discrete choice experiment where mm -hmm. people have to wait what they would value more and what information they think would be valuable around a genetic diagnosis. And it was overwhelming of, of the Australian public that they did value receiving a genetic diagnosis mm. for children with a speech condition because of the extra information it could give people yeah. and also additional potential benefit for obtaining funding right. um, okay. through the NDIS, etc. So yes. there are a lot of potential benefits. And then we also surveyed 56 um, parents of um, children who do have severe speech and language disorder as well, just to see, well, from a parent perspective, is that the same as the Australian public? And the best piece of news that we will use to advocate to Medicare now, because at the moment we can't um, receive a genetic diagnosis for a child with a, a primary speech and language condition through Medicare, is that we've proven through the health economic analysis that it does seem that there are savings, uh, marked savings of conducting um, a genetic um, 
diagnosis, things like saving on sending families off for brain scans, blood tests, multiple um, specialist appointments that might lead to nowhere. Um, And so, yeah, that's really been a powerful exercise and um, was nice to see um, that that Mm. would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I think the downside for people, you know, we have to be honest and think about the downside is sometimes there are conditions where you might not have anticipated that there might be known, say, heart issues related to a particular gene. And we've had that instance once where we had to say to a family, this gene change does explain your speech and language condition but in other children occasionally there have been heart findings so we had to help organize a cardiology appointment and that was really hard that was hard for our team to think about that thankfully that child doesn't have those um, other challenges in their health which was just absolutely fantastic and a nice relief for the family and our team Mm. but that was a sobering moment to think about Mm, absolutely that's right consequences yeah other unknown medical conditions that could be associated and you could open a bit of a Pandora's box in a way. So there's that little risk factor, isn't there? Absolutely. And interestingly, when we came back and asked the family, you know, we we were sorry to put you through that process, but how did you feel? They said that actually on reflection they were so grateful because what if something had happened to their child and they'd never known about it? So often we do see very sad instances of sudden cardiac issues in children or, you know, respiratory Mm. conditions where children have had a dreadful asthma attack, people weren't aware of, etc. So this family had reflected that actually in hindsight the knowledge was powerful and that if their child had had an issue it would have been detected before they would have appreciated it yeah Yeah, yeah. exactly before they appreciated they'd need to get help because there'd been Mm. no symptoms yeah Mm, very interesting Mm. now I'm wondering if I can direct our conversation to one of your very very recent research papers that um, I believe uh, came out in September 2022 which is called genetic etiologies for childhood speech disorder novel pathways co-expressed during brain development and I believe it's looking at CAS absolutely I'm just wondering um, what you sort of discovered as part of that research Yeah, no, lovely question. Yes, so that um, paper, we were really proud. It had uh, around 70 different families um, of children with apraxia or a couple of families and had a very severe fond disorder or maybe a dysarthria in there too. Um, But all families were referred to us on the basis of having apraxia confirmed from a speech pathologist. Uh, And we found, I think there were, yes, um, 18 uh, diagnoses for the children in that cohort and 15 of the genes we identified hadn't previously been associated with apraxia. So in that one paper, we actually doubled the number of candidate genes we know could explain apraxia. Three of the genes that were in the cohort, um, we also have found in other cohorts we've seen before. So we're starting to see some of the same gene um, conditions come up across cohorts of children with speech disorder, which is reassuring, I suppose, that those findings have been very real replicated independently across different cohorts Mm. but we also see so many different genes coming up too and it makes you think well why does that happen and that's where the the clue is in the title there too that um that all of these genes what they're doing is 
they have important proteins that are expressed in the brain during important times of brain development, early brain development. And those genes are really important for the growth and development of brain regions that support speech and language development, which makes total sense, therefore. Mm. So if those genes have mutations or variations, changes in them, and then the proteins are differently expressed in the brain during those important times of growing regions from speech and language, then we see those apraxic profiles and the other speech and language challenges that come with those profiles. So that paper was really important in confirming what we'd seen in our previous much smaller two earlier papers that all of these genes essentially are just important for brain development. Mm. I did notice there was a bit of overlap you discovered with other conditions. Can you touch on that a little bit? Perfect. And that leads perfectly into what we're talking about there. Because when you are looking at early brain development, of course, one or so genes might be altered or perturbed, but that has flow-on effects for different pathways. And so what's being found across all areas of neurodevelopment, so it's not just in speech, but I'll focus on speech for now, is that... um, We see children might present with a speech condition, but they also might have autism and or epilepsy and or ADHD and or cerebral palsy features. So all the things we see in clinic and we know that children are far more complex than just having this one feature. And we're we're realising that and talking more about that openly in apraxia now, which is really terrific that children do come hand in hand with motor challenges, which we've known Mm. about, learning challenges, literacy challenges. But that's coming across across all areas of neurodevelopment. And it might have been that in the past people have focused on genes for autism or genes for epilepsy. But now that so much work's coming forward, genes that have been found in an epilepsy cohort might also be seen in an autism cohort, might also be seen in a speech Mm. cohort. And it doesn't mean that all of the children have all of these conditions because you can be differentially affected and only have a speech issue and not always speech and epilepsy, etc. But that... um, we sort of understand the overlap better because of this link of the brain and how those genes affect brain development and how complex the brain is and the ongoing pathways and flow forward and flow back effects of having an altered pathway and how that might alter other parts of the brain that control seizure activity or control our social skills. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we talked about that in our paper sort of from the first time thinking about that overlap from a speech and language perspective. I mean, we see it clinically all the time mm. oh of course we do Absolutely. yeah <laughs> yeah coming up in the biology just starts to help us make sense as to why we see that but also I think yeah so important to acknowledge it's the same across the autism gene finding studies or epilepsy gene finding mm-hmm. studies and even some of my colleagues who are speech pathologists on our paper you know I loved their feedback because clinical geneticists and pediatricians didn't say this they weren't even questioning this but some of my speech colleagues were saying oh how can you sort of say it's a gene for speech if it's been seen in this condition or that condition and I get where they're coming from because absolutely certainly when we set off on this journey we wanted to find genes that were speech specific and everyone thought FOXP2 was quite speech specific Mm. it's still one of the most speech specific genes but you can't say that individuals don't necessarily also have some fine motor issues or other conditions so I think yeah just accepting that neurodevelopmental diversity is part of all of these genes Mm. and even in autism they say now there's no such thing as autism specific genes you know and I think I think that's sort of true for speech there are genes that are more susceptible for leading to speech and language disorders but 
probably the old-fashioned way of saying, oh, Fox P2 is a gene for speech. And only. And speech. only. It's <laughs> really, yeah, that's that sort of our old thinking now and we, yeah, we yeah. must never say that, yeah. Now, I did notice on your website something that did spark my interest a little bit in regards to CAS and some of the research that's happening with CAS, mm. and that was in regards to a medicine trial, mm. trialling Ritalin, which really mm. sparked my interest. I know Ritalin's a stimulant medication, typically prescribed for children with ADHD and it increases the action of neurotransmitters, particularly dopamine. And I'm just trying to get my head around how um, this research has come about and and what people are hoping to find. Yes. So it's a very preliminary trial and it's really more about feasibility. Um, So from this trial, we won't have the evidence to definitely say, yes, use Ritalin or don't use Ritalin. And I'm certainly not advocating the use of Ritalin for apraxia. I wouldn't, wouldn't do that at this point in time. But where the trial came from was from many families who had anecdotally shared with me that their children who also had attention deficit challenges or the presence of a full ADHD diagnosis. So we, all of the children in our trial, yes, they have a proxy, but they also have to have the presence of ADHD features. So that's the first thing to really highlight. Oh, it's, right. Okay. It's yep. not a proxy without those features. Absolutely. They need to mm-hmm. still uh, meet certain criteria for having an ADHD profile. And families of some individuals, children who had had ADHD found and apraxia, found that when they had used Ritalin, their child was able to better attend and better to focus in speech pathology mm-hmm. sessions and therefore, and their speech really did come along more efficiently. And they're just anecdotal reports, but I felt that there had been sort of people tweeting things or talking about things uh, to family forums, etc. And I thought probably it'd be nice to have some more robust and systematic evidence if we're going to mm-hmm. going to consider uh, these sorts of therapies. It's it's not a trial we took on lightly. I've never done a pharmacological trial mm. before. And we have Professor Inga Sheffer, a neurologist, uh, Professor Daryl Efron, who actually led the first Australian trial of Ritalin in children with ADHD. He's a paediatrician expert in ADHD. And also Georgie Paxton. So we have three paediatricians. Georgie's an expert in children with communication disorders, a paediatrician on our campus. Oh, also David A. Moore, a geneticist. So four medical doctors. And the amount of governance that we had to go through was, you know, importantly, um, very extensive on the Melbourne Mm. Children's um, Clinical Trials Centre and the campus here. So we had a drug trials committee, there are Mm. other legal committees, uh, as well as typical research uh, governance committees. So yeah, children go through a very rigorous um, and very safe protocol. Um, But uh, yeah, it's been a really interesting uh, area to look at. And I really only did that because of the families that came to me and mm-hmm. felt that they would like to see, is there real evidence for this? Because on their own personal experience that has worked. And of course, we have to say for lots of children, stimulants don't work. Mm, that's right. Lots of children have a negative reaction to stimulants. And you'll know that pretty soon and pretty quickly going in to trialing um, stimulants and Ritalin. And that's where your pediatrician, of course, is really cool mm-hmm. to monitor those symptoms and look at the safety of that medication for your child. Mm. So, so yeah. how far into the study are you? Are you still recruiting people or... Um, and is it, uh, I guess, the people involved or the kids involved in the study, are they children that already take Ritalin or is taking Ritalin a Great new question. 
anything Great for question. them. We've we heard we're um, four four and a half four kids in, um, and we'd love to see twenty children at this stage mm-hmm. of feasibility. We haven't had any um, adverse side effects to a point where a child would have to stop the trial, you know. Um, but uh, so that's all been really positive. Um, we've had a great team. But you're right that children have to have not been already taken. Right. Them. Okay. And that's been really tricky. It's really hard to recruit to. It really is because most of the children whose families would really like to, to sort of be involved in a trial, they've already identified their child as having needed mm. that um, pharmacological support, that their child already had a neurobiological change or neurophysiological change that made attending, sitting still in class, paying attention, all of that impulsivity that can cause real problems for families. Yeah, they're already on Ritalin. So mm. it's been really tricky because CAS is already such a rare condition. Mm. So yeah, we're just talking about ways to, you know, share that information broadly. But being a Drug. You can't sort of mention the drug in, in ads and things like that on Google. And so, yeah, we're going carefully with how could we um, discuss that um, mm. trial. Well, good luck. It sounds absolutely fascinating. Totally yeah. fascinating. And just so. um, feeds yeah. into that overlap, doesn't it, between all these different conditions. And it's, yeah, just really interesting. I can't wait to see what comes out of that when um, some results are published. It sounds amazing. Thanks, Annika. Yeah, I think it's the subtyping, you know, that is one subtype of children with apraxia where that is impacting their learning. The ADHD features are impacting their learning. Can addressing mm-hmm. the ADHD help the speech? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So we've spoken a lot about CAS and some other conditions. I'm wondering if we could move to stuttering, if that's okay, because I know that um, the genetics of stuttering is also something that um, your team's been interested in. Um, What have you discovered so far about the genetics of stuttering? Yeah, so stuttering is such an interesting condition, as we know. Um, And of course, not all individuals with stuttering would like to know, again, as we've talked about the causation. um, And many people with stuttering um, don't necessarily seek a, a treatment. So they're things we're really feel passionate about sharing from working with our charity groups and and groups that really are uh, consumer-led groups. Um, So what we've learned, though, is that unlike apraxia, stuttering is completely different. So there are a few genes that have been identified for stuttering, but those genes seem to be very rare very, very rare, more rare than any of the apraxia genetic conditions. Mm. Um, And they haven't been coming up the genes that were identified by some NIH groups a few years ago, NIH being the National Institutes of Health in the state. So Dennis Drainer, who's since retired, but his lab um, still have a few papers coming out. So in our Australian population, at least, we haven't found those genes to be causative for stuttering. Mm. What people feel uh, is more likely the case is that instead of these sort of single gene conditions like we've talked about all the chromosomal conditions, stuttering is likely due to um, polygenic, they call it. So polymers meaning lots of genes. So mm-hmm. carrying small bits of risk, if you like, or very small spelling errors on a number of genes. So whether that might end up being two or three genes that have to be affected to tip us over into the edge of being more disfluent, or whether we find out, you know, it's 10 genes for some individuals that lead them to being more disfluent. And I think that makes sense for a lot of us because lots of people we work with with stuttering feel that there were certain moments or issues, mm. very environmental mental factors that did feel for individuals that they 
uh, sort of interplayed with their communication abilities and seemed to lead them down a path for mm. for more disfluent speech or for more fluent speech because we mm. know there are some really effective therapies for stuttering, mm. um, such as in younger children, the Lidcom program and smooth speech for some individuals. So, um, and I think just showing that ability for maybe epigenetics as we call it or gene environment interactions and that and that in stuttering it doesn't work for everybody but for some individuals some of those therapies can be so highly effective shows Mm -hmm. that interplay between complex genetics and environment so what have we found exactly um it's going to require probably tens of thousands of individuals to take part so we are partnering with colleagues in the u.s so you might have seen there are a couple of nice big papers from colleagues in the u.s so shelly joe craft who's a speech pathologist who studies genetics, also Piper Below, who works with Shelley Joe at the Vanderbilt University. They had a couple of big papers out uh, where a certain genetic loci, or if you like a few genes have been pinpointed as maybe being some of those genes that will be the genes that are also partnered with other genes. So we don't have any big answers yet. You know, there's all signals that are coming through, but we don't have the definitive set of here are all the genes that could put us at risk. But there are a few signals coming through but they need to be replicated mm-hmm. so in our group we're looking at the couple of thousand Australian cases we've already gathered seeing if those signals are coming up in our Australian population etc so I suppose the big change is yeah knowing that it's as likely to be multiple genes but that still research is ongoing and there's not no really big findings that we have to be super aware of in our clinical practice but mm. we'll keep watching this space in the coming yeah. years yeah fantastic oh, I could honestly keep chatting to you all day and it's just sorry so- I see the time no not at all it's absolutely fascinating but before we do finish up I know you mentioned earlier that you obviously we've chatted about your website as a good place for speech pathologists to go is there anywhere else you'd suggest um, as good places for a speech pathologist that just wants a bit more information about this area to go to? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that the NIH, again, National Institute of Health Gene Reviews, um, so on the PubMed platform as well, if you've got a specific genetic condition that a child's been referred to you with, the gene reviews are really accessible reviews you know there'll still be bits that I don't understand within them that get into the very genetic um, components but the nice bit about them is they usually have allied health sections as well that tell us what the physio implications would be OT implications speech and language implications that have been written by other teams internationally um, and and that tell you a bit more about the clinical presentation of those conditions because they're designed for pediatricians GPs family members a bit they're a bit more technical really than for family members Members, but people do try and share and get some consumer mm-hmm. input on them. So, yeah, I think they're a really good resource, particularly where we mightn't have the gene on our website or other groups haven't had a speech and language focus. I think that's that's really a go-to. Beautiful. Go. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. I'll include some of those in the show notes too for everyone listening so you can just click on something and it'll take you somewhere useful. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. It is just such an absolutely fascinating area. I'm, I'm kind of happy that I've survived and I didn't drown too much. I understood everything you were talking about and hopefully people listening will too because I do think this area is something that speech pathologists find a little bit complex. Mm. Um, but I think it's something that we really need to be learning more about and um, being brave enough to learn more about because it is, as you say, evolving and it's going to keep growing and we need to, to really keep our knowledge up in this area. So thank Thank you so, so much for joining me. 
Thanks so much, Annika. I really appreciated it. Thank you. And thank you for having Angela and I in your ears today. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for our next Speak Up conversation. Thanks, Ange. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.